Senior Partner at ProClinical Executive. Recently, I spoke to Angela Cunningham, who's a mentor of female executives as part of our Female Leader Series. And something we were learning from her was how to reframe your thinking to overcome self-doubt. Let's hear from Angela. So the way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. So it's to reframe how you think and then the feelings will follow. I think as senior leaders, we need to mentor upcoming female future leaders in the workforce to help build their confidence and guide them through the obstacles that we all have ourselves have overcome. I'm honoured to be joined here today by Angela Cunningham. Angela has 25 years of experience holding leadership roles in both the UK, the US, and in a variety of industries, including retail, education, technology, real estate, print, and digital media. Throughout her career, Angela has advocated for and amplified women at work and is driven to see more women in leadership roles. Through the power of mentorship, Angela believes that as senior leaders, we have a vital role to play in supporting women in the workforce. Currently working as Director of Partnerships for a global nonprofit organization, teaching public speaking and leadership skills, Angela is a journalist and writer contributing to websites and magazines on the topics of women in leadership. Angela holds a BA Honours degree from Surrey University in the UK, a master's degree from Lancaster University in the UK, a postgraduate diploma in journalism from the University of Central Lancashire in England, and a diploma in women in leadership from Cornell. She also founded the STEMI Collective and Female Mentorship International, both focused on bringing online communities of women together to share their career experiences and provide support through mentorship. Angela, thanks for joining me for International Women's Day. I know many women will be very much appreciative of you taking the time to share your insights and guidance. Pleasure to be here, Claire. Thank you. Um, so, Angela, you mentor women through their careers and have said one of the biggest things women struggle with is to talk about their achievements. Tell us a bit about that. That's right. Some women find it difficult to talk about their achievements and abilities because they feel like it's boasting, they're showing off or bragging. Uh, some feel embarrassed and, and cringe if they're made to draw attention to the things that they've succeeded in. There's a, there's a study out there um, conducted by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they've found that women in particular suffer from not knowing how to self-promote at work compared to, say, equally performing men. And that the cause could stem from as early as sixth grade. So they report that in the school classrooms, girls are being told to be good and be quiet, be nice, and don't interrupt the teacher. And I think that expectation that girls should follow the rules and not be disruptive are set quite early. And, and it's this that is carried through to adulthood for, for many women. Um, the, the, the survey said it's no surprise then that years later in the workplace then the same women struggle to speak up and to put themselves forward for that promotion or to push to take the lead on a lead project or, or even ask for a, a pay rise. Thanks, Angela. It's interesting. Have you found that to be the case among some of the women you mentor? 
Yes, yes, I have. Um, it, it, it stems even beyond being able to talk about achievements. It can be even reluctancy to express an opinion, uh, to speak up, and even seeps into the types of leaders they are and the behaviours that they exhibit in the workplace. So some of my clients talk about feeling that they must choose between being, being light on one hand, so you know, agreeing to to each other's um, or to others' opinions and not being too assertive in meetings and always seeking consensus. You know, should we take a vote or that's just my opinion? I could be wrong. So, so choosing between that on, on the one hand and then on the other hand, taking control of meetings and situations or leading the narrative and stating that direction as, as fact. So that feeling of being torn between, you know, which hat to wear, that is known as the double bind dilemma. So again, another um, survey I can, I can quote is by IBM. They surveyed and sponsored Catalyst to conduct a report. And that report was to examine if uh, gender stereotypes can create problems for women leaders. And then they found that three predicaments put women in this double bind and can potentially undermine their leadership. So the report identified, uh, firstly, extreme perceptions. So women are perceived as either too soft or too tough, but rarely as kind of just right. It's kind of like Goldilocks, you know, bed's too hard, too soft. So rarely will it just get it just right and just in the middle. The second thing the survey found was this high competence threshold. So, so women leaders face higher standards and, then, and lower rewards than many men leaders. And thirdly, it's the competent but, but disliked factor. So women leaders are perceived as competent, so they do their job well, or are less competent but light. And again, rarely both. So there's a perception by some, therefore, that women are these caretaker leaders and they display typically, uh, their words not mine, typically female characteristics, such as like being supportive, encouraging lots of team building and, and collaborating through through networking whereas men display more take charge behaviors they identify with words such as delegating and problem solving influencing others so we need to move past these perceptions and biases of leadership behavior and and, the, and, and be conscious of our own bias because we all have them so when we encounter female leaders at work leaders at work just set aside you know your own bias and I think if we start to do that, fewer women leaders would feel trapped by this so-called double bind dilemma. Thanks for explaining those concepts, Angela. That's really helpful. And um, what do you advise your clients to do when identifying their achievements? So there's some quite practical things you can do. So firstly, for those that really struggle to talk about what they've achieved, I have them think about the impact their achievements have had on others. So how has their achievement helped someone else? For example, if they successfully landed this great job with great pay, I have them think about how that has impacted their family. So as a direct result of you getting that fantastic dream job, you were able to close the mortgage on a new house, move to a place you actually want to live in, and therefore secure your children in that great local school. Or another example could be, as a result of negotiating a larger budget at work, you were able to hire another person. Therefore, you're reducing the pressure and stress on your current team members. You're allowing them to focus on their roles and improve accountability, therefore leading to general 
an increase in job satisfaction amongst your staff. So seeing the impact of how your achievements on others can, can help those that you care about uh, can be a, a way for, for those women that really struggle to even um, you know, ad admit and talk about their achievements and actually be able to speak up about them and actually own them. I think secondly, I'd also say is mind your language. <laughs> women have a tendency to downplay their roles in achievements and we sometimes use cushioning languages such as I supported and I assisted. I would advise to think about action words. So I led, I managed, I drove. And using the right words, whether it's on a resume or in an interview, can make a huge difference. I think thirdly, think about telling a narrative when talking about your achievements rather than just thinking and putting them down in bullet lists. So in interviews, for example, if you're asked to tell someone about an achievement that you've recently accomplished, have some anecdotes ready. Take, take the interviewer on a journey so they understand what was involved in your achievement. For example, if I say, um, as my achievement, uh, uh, I made sure my team delivered the product on time and to budget. All right, it's all great. It's all great stuff, but it's short and it doesn't really expand on how or why that was such a good achievement. So you'll take the same example and you reframe it. And you could say something like, this was the first time in five years since our company launched a new product of this scale. So there was a lot of expectation to succeed. So then again, not using cushing language, you could say, I ensured that the developers and the designers had fully understood what our customer research had shown us and that the new product exceeded the number of features that was expected in the market. I directed the support team to complete all internal business processes so they were ready for the launch and felt confident that they could support our customers from day one. I manage the cross-collaboration of the marketing team, the product team, so that all marketing campaigns are aligned with the correct release dates, et cetera, et cetera. So you're taking the interviewer on this journey with you, sharing the narrative and giving yourself the opportunity to talk about what exactly went into your achievement. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I can see that being so useful for women, not only applying for new jobs or in the interview process, but also you know, going for that promotion and being able to articulate just because you work for a company doesn't necessarily mean they know exactly what you've achieved. So being able to articulate that using that language is, is really great. So thanks for that. Um, sure. what, what is the imposter syndrome? Ah, okay. Um, so many people have probably heard of that. So the imposter syndrome was a phrase that was coined, gosh, about 45 years ago now uh, by two clinical psychologists. It's still used widely today, and it describes a feeling that often grips high achievers um, generally, and that's the feeling of being found out, of being exposed as a fraud, uh, to not really having the ability to internalize, again, achievements and successes. So someone with imposter syndrome might feel guilty about success and have a tendency to discount their achievements you find themselves thinking, oh my goodness, why did I get this promotion or, or why did I get this job? Why me? Uh, there's, a, there's a brilliant speech out there on TED, TED Talks um, by a lady called Valerie Young. She's a co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute. She refers to a guy she overheard once saying, oh, if I can get a PhD in astrophysics from Caltech, 
anybody can. So, so in this way, that syndrome reflects that inner doubt, that little voice that makes you doubt yourself can, can affect anyone, apparently even astrophysicists. How interesting, especially that it affects high achievers. That's really um, quite surprising and interesting to hear. Um, is it a feeling that impacts women more than men, would you say? Hmm. So, so again, many studies throughout the world uh, on this subject, and some researchers would argue that it's actually more to do with environment in the workplace rather than, say, uh, gender. Um, the, the, the two psychologists, Clanson and Emes, who names the imposter syndrome, uh, their study was carried out in 1978, so quite some time ago. It was focused on high-achieving women only, and that was at a time when women in leadership in general was considered unusual. So I think historically that gender uh, connection may be because of the um, timing of that particular report. And I think as time has progressed, the term imposter syndrome, whilst it's still used today, does raise some arguments that what we're really talking about is self-doubt and inadequacy, which is a natural reaction and, and experienced by many people, regardless of whether male or female, and also regardless of really gender, race, nationality, religion, economic status, etc. everything. It can all be triggered by really anyone who feels under pressure and who have um, folks that, who have really high expectations of themselves, I'd say. So how do you overcome this feeling of ineptitude? So the, so the way to stop feeling like an imposter, which is what you, you do feel like when you have the imposter syndrome, is to stop thinking like an imposter. So it's to reframe how you think and then the feelings will follow. It takes time and practice and there could still be times when you have moments of self-doubt and feelings of being an imposter, but it won't take over your life. And you can learn how to reduce those feelings when, you are, when you're in that situation. And again, if you read anything, I mentioned before, Valerie, read anything by Valerie Young. Um, she'll refer you to, to, to thinking your way through. I think you know, some people come to me to be coached on preparing for an interview. And uh, the way I do it, we work through a number of sessions on, on why they want the job, what, what appeals to them about the company, the relevance of their experience, qualifications. And we end like the sessions, we conclude it all with a mock interview. And then after the interview, I always give constructive feedback. Now, those that do not suffer from imposter syndrome are so eager to get the feedback because they want to improve. They want to know what, what can they build upon because they know there is room for improvement in everybody. But those that have the doubt and could be described as, you know, having this imposter syndrome, they... They feel almost crushed sometimes. You've got to be really careful giving feedback because they see it as a shortcoming. They feel like they may fail the interview because they just aren't good enough. Um, so I work with them to say, think about the feedback I'm giving differently. Think about your, your resume and your own career experiences of work in progress. It was never at an end. It, it's never perfect. You know, we're always learning. So don't expect perfection. I'll give you an, um, an example when I felt imposter syndrome. So in my early 20s, quite, quite some time ago, I worked as an inventory controller for an international publishing company. And it was right in the heart of London um, in, in central uh, Covent Garden. And I remember going into my first meeting on my first day with my boss and walking into a room of these older, very elegantly dressed people 
who were, you know, talking really posh accents about print runs and selling foreign rights and how many thousands of copies of the latest travel guide to Italy we were going to sell. And I felt so out of my depth. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, what the heck am I doing in this room? I've, I've got nothing to contri contribute. I don't want to make a fool of myself. If they ask me a question or my opinion on something, I'm not going to know what to say. So I kept my eyes down and I wanted to avoid all eye contact. So I, I think I began fiddling with my, my pencil or rustling through some papers. And the room went quiet for like half a second. I just peeped up. And as I looked up, I saw one man mouthing across the room to a, a colleague and they're pointing at me like, who's that? Who's that? And the colleague is just like shrugging shoulders. I don't know. You know, they were kind of mouthing this conversation. And I left that meeting 45 minutes later, having said nothing, having contributed nothing. And I was sure that I didn't deserve to be in that room so much so I couldn't even say my name and introduce myself, even though I know people were like wondering, who is that? Now, some could say, well, that's your boss's fault. They should have introduced you. Okay, of course, it, that's another story. But the point was that, you know, I just didn't feel that confidence. So you later... I look back now and I wish I could have told my younger self to reframe my thoughts, to not think that I was inadequate and to understand, look, no one was expecting me to be an expert in my job on day one. Um, and, and I wanted to say to myself, it's okay to ask for help and guidance. No one else in the room or in that meeting knew everything about everything. And so what I say now is how you view and frame competence, success, and failure all have a part to play in feeling like an imposter or not. So in conclusion, I would say begin to reframe how you think and the feelings will for sure follow. Thank you for sharing that story, Angela. Uh, yeah, and uh, it, it's really interesting that you know, everything starts with the thought process and then the words and then the actions uh, follow. As part of your work, you mentor other women leaders. Why do you think that's important? Well, well first of all, let's talk about what mentoring is. Uh, traditionally, it's a one-to-one -one relationship between a mentor and a mentee. And it's focused on developing the growth of the mentee. Uh, the mentor would generally be someone who has more experience or expertise on a relevant topic that the mentee wants to improve on. The relationship is quite long term. So say over a period of six, maybe up to 12 months. And then a successful mentor-mentee relationship really based on trust and confidence. I'd say mutual respect and sensitivity. And from a practical point of view, it's recommended um, to have a long-term plan based on the mentee's goals and then action points which are set by the mentor. So you can also then have regular check-ins and have this open and honest communication and feedback. And that usually, couple all of that together, usually likes, leads to quite a successful match. Now, why have a mentor at all? So um, women who have strong mentors enjoy more promotions. They enjoy higher pay and they enjoy greater career satisfaction. And having a mentor can help you develop your skills, your confidence, your network, and ultimately helps you succeed with whatever that might look like for you. Okay, so some mentors are within your organization and tend to be senior to you. Uh, these 
relationships can be important because mentors can act as sponsors within your company. So that means that the mentee has someone on their side um, that maybe uh, can look to look out in the company for opportunities for you to, to follow, or maybe it's to make an introduction to a senior leader or even to suggest them for certain projects that would help elevate their career path. So really useful to have a mentor within your company. Now, some mentors can be from outside of the workplace and that can bring a different kind of expertise um, and a different viewpoint on career growth. Uh, perhaps a mentor's from the same industry, um, just a different company or even a totally different industry, but is still able to be men be able to mentor on certain skills and, and things like you know negotiating or uh, growing a startup business um, I think as senior leaders we need to mentor upcoming female future leaders in the workforce to help build their confidence and guide them through the obstacles that we all have ourselves have overcome so in, a, in industries such, such as IT engineering financial services industry where there are far fewer leaders to have that positive female role model for other women. It, it was really um, important to be inspired and get support. Uh, really, really vital to be able to grow in, in, in those kind of industries. Now, I, I've worked in, um, as you said earlier, in education and the nonprofit world, uh, in publishing, there's been a, a, you know, a really higher ratio, I'd say, of women to men in leadership roles um, where I've been, but I can count on one hand the number of female mentors I've had in a 30-year career span. Um, so I now mentor women both in groups online and in one-to-one -one mentoring relationships. I'm a passionate advocate for the importance of um, good mentorship today for our uh, upcoming leaders. Just to add this though, by the way, uh, men obviously can mentor women too and vice versa. From speaking to folks and from experience, though I know that this can cause some mentors and mentees to pause before committing to a male-female mentoring relationship because they're afraid of the perception that colleagues or spouses would have. It is unfortunate um, on the one hand because in some industries there just aren't enough females in senior leader roles to be mentors for upcoming female leaders and and men who want to mentor and who would make great sponsors uh, may hesitate before entering into a mentoring relationship with a female, um, you know, generally more junior member of staff. So that that is something um, that I, that I think it, you know is we're at a disadvantage of, and um, I'd, I'd love to be able to kind of move past those kind of biases. Thanks, Angela. That's uh, that's all super useful. And uh, I mean, when you're looking at that relationship what practical steps would a, a mentor mentee relationship take so uh, this could differ uh, depending on if the mentor or mentee are in the same company or not but I think generally speaking um, seek to set the expectations of both sides up front so what is the purpose of this specific relationship you know what is the mentee looking to achieve and be realistic. Um, you aren't going to be an Olympic swimmer in the next 12 months if you don't know how to swim today, for example. Set realistic goals. I'd set expectations. So how often do you both want to meet? Is it in person or online or a mix of both? What is the preferred method of communication? Is it Zoom calls, phone calls, emails, or again, a mix? And how long will mentoring sessions last? 
what's the duration of the relationship in total? Uh, six months or 12 months? Are they each meeting like one hour sessions at a time? So, so figure all those things out. And then for sure, keep commitments on both sides. We all do get busy, but committing to that mentor-mentee relationship is important. If you're the mentee, make sure you come to meetings prepared. Make sure you've carried out any work that was expected of you uh, or goals that were set by your mentor. If you're the mentor, say be patient, listen more than talk, uh, don't direct, but instead offer guidance um, and, and encouragement. And uh, overall, ask questions. Ask questions of the mentee, and that will promote that insight to help guide you as the mentor. Thanks, Angela. And I suppose it doesn't take a lot of time either. I know of a, a Silicon Valley CEO who's really new um, in the industry and in leadership, and she would buy breakfast once a month um, for her mentor uh, who would, you know, talk to her for an hour or so before jumping on his flight. And it was really natural and, and pleasant, and, and she was able to, to, you know, to really utilise that advice. And so thanks for sharing that. And then what's one way that people could connect with you if they wanted to talk further about this? I'd, I'd be happy to um, connect with anyone that, that wants to talk a little bit more or, um, you know, wants to exchange some information or some contact details. The best, uh, at the moment, the best email to reach me on, Claire, um, and maybe we could kind of put this at the end of the presentation, but it's Angela, A-N-G-E-L-A, Angela at thementoringplan.com. Angela at thementoringplan.com. It's a new community that I'm starting to build. Um, so that would be the best place to connect with me right at this moment. Um, or, or LinkedIn, look for me on LinkedIn too. Thank you so much, Angela. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I know many people will be grateful for your insights and the kindness and generosity that you've shared today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. ProClinical Executive are proud to be global growth partners in life sciences. For more information about how we can support the growth of your board and leadership team, please visit proclinical.com forward slash executive.